Well, let's find 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in our Bibles. And let me just say that, as always, you know, uh, Craig had mentioned that the subject of this passage of Scripture is a mature subject. So we've asked our middle schoolers to go to another class during this time. And again, parents, it's totally up to you, but you've been warned. Uh, it, we do take the scriptures as they come, and when the scriptures talk about mature subjects, we're going to talk about mature subjects, and it's not that often that it happens, but here it is, and this is the, actually the benefit of walking through the scripture expositionally, verse by verse, hitting it all. We don't avoid anything. We don't run from anything. We just receive what God has chosen to write so that we could get what he has for us doing this. One of the things that we've been learning as we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians is that any level of selfishness destroys the community of the fellowship of believers. Uh, we talked about how 1 Corinthians, among the many subjects that are covered, has an underlying theme, and I've used the phrase because it's easy to remember, we is greater than me. Uh, the, the importance of the body of Christ together, unified as a community of believers, is a critically important subject to the heart of God. And we attack that, we destroy that, when we don't act in such a way to take into consideration the whole body, but we just think selfishly. What about me? What do I get? What have they done for me lately? And when that begins to take root in you, well, then you run the risk of causing a lot of different problems. So the first four chapters that we've covered already deal with a lot of different interpersonal relationships. And it's going to intensify a little bit getting into chapters 5 and 6 that we'll begin now and spend the next, oh, I don't know, five or six weeks going through as it deals with the theme begins today with a sexual relationship, but then the consequences and the and the the offshooting comes from that basis going through chapters 5 and 6 as we will see as we go through any of this. Now when you think about selfishness in the context of sexual relationships, that means any kind of sexual relationship that is done outside the bounds that God gives for sexual relationships, which is only within a legal marriage of a man and a woman. So any kind of activity that is outside of those bounds, right, is selfish. It's selfish, and it causes detriment, it causes destruction. And so that's what we're going to see. Uh, what we're going to look at really is the idea of relational purity. And so starting it off, I just thought that was the easiest title to pick for today's message, which is just going to be titled Purity. So I was researching this word, that word as it's used, purity, as a noun, is not actually found in the Bible. The word pure is all through the Bible, but we'll, we're going to get into that. I just took some definitions. There are several definitions that are listed in one resource I like to use, and it's the old Webster's Dictionary from 1828. Let me just read to you some of the definitions that Webster gives for the word purity. The first one is freedom from foreign admixture or heterogeneous matter as in the purity of water. So, for example, if you had a glass of pure water and you had a glass of sewer water, you would drink the pure water, feel fine about it, right? But if somebody added some of the sewer water to the... Well, you don't want to drink that anymore. It has become impure, right? Uh, so generally, the freedom from any foreign substance mixed in with the pure substance... Right, that's kind of an understanding. Cleanness is another definition. Freedom from foulness or dirt. In other words, like in the purity of a garment, a linen vesture, something like that. Uh, it goes on to more of a spiritual definition. It's the reason I like Webster. Freedom from guilt or the defilement of sin. Innocence, as in purity of heart or life. Um, I don't know anything in life that is a better example of human purity than a little child. Uh, little children are innocent. They are clean. They are pure. In fact, the only thing that you could compare to a little child's purity, I think that's why God tells us adults we have to come to him as little children. The only thing that compares to the purity of a little child on planet Earth is the Word of God. And so the defilement of those things 
Well, it has particular consequence. And the last definition, most specifically, and we will be dealing with this one because it is referred to this way as chastity, freedom from contamination by illicit sexual connection. And so that's really the issue we're going to be looking at. And the one thing that's fairly obvious, and I will state it for the sake of clarity, is that the church, the community of the church, is to be pure. It is to be pure. And so we see that in several places. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2, the church is to be as, Paul says, a chaste virgin. That word chaste, that's the same root, chastity. It's the exact same word as pure, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. It talks about husband and wife relationships, and it gives the picture of Christ and the church and how Christ has bought the church and he washes it with the pure water of the word of God that he might present it to himself, holy, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, a pure, holy bride. And we know that eventually that's going to come true, right? In Revelation chapter 19, the church has been raptured out, the tribulation's on the earth, and the bride has made herself ready with linen vesture, the robes, righteousness, clean and white, as after the judgment seat of Christ, we come back with the Lord as the complete fulfillment of that pure church that God desires. Since we are, as individuals, right, we are members of a greater whole. We as individual believers are a part of a community of believers. It becomes critically important that we have individual purity because individual purity is critical to preserving corporate purity, wouldn't you say? And that's what we're going to see. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and then we'll get into it. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a sobering passage of scripture, and we've got some things we're going to need to learn. So let's pray and we'll get started. So, Heavenly Father, as we find ourselves before this truth, we desperately need you to be our teacher and our guide and to give us the clear understanding that we need to have. Lord, I know that in your word you tell us that to the pure, all things are pure. But to them who are defiled, well, nothing's pure. Because even their mind and their conscience is defiled. And we live in perilous, perilous times. And our society around us, which is directed by the devil and spiritual wickedness in high places, is ever drawing and tempting us to fall into sleep and slumber and to not even notice anymore when things are going on around us. The Corinthians had this problem. It might be true of situations we know about. I pray, Lord Jesus that you would speak. I pray that you would purify your bride. I pray that you would protect us and keep us clean until that very day where we will all one day stand before you to give account. We love you and we look forward to what you have for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in this subject, there's a very clear division of what we're looking at concerning this issue of purity, chastity, uh, uh, relational cleanness. And the first thing that we'll look at, the way I put it in your notes, is purity is corrupted. Purity is corrupted in the first couple of verses. Um, purity, as we saw in Webster's definition, one of the definitions, is it's corrupted any time that it's defiled by sin, right? And any kind of sin. But 
The truth of the matter is, the worse the sin, the worse the corruption, right? I mean, I get it, all sin is sin, and any sin sends you to hell. That's true in the eternal significance. But the consequences aren't the same for all the different sins, right? Some deeper sin have deeper consequences. And so the word that's used here is fornication. The word is fornication. And can I just tell you that the old King James Bible is very precise when it uses this word. You see, our culture today doesn't want to use that word anymore. Our culture today wants to soften the blow and just talk about, for example, let's just call it in the news media, uh, premarital sex. Or even better yet, let's just call it adult consent. And they make it almost like, well, you know, that's just another option on the plate as long as you have consenting adults. No, it's fornication. That's the word. Uh, unless you're reading other versions of the English Bible where they don't use the word fornication in any of them. They'll refer to sexual immorality. You say that's the same thing. I say it's not. Uh, the New American Standard Bible, for example, only says immorality. It doesn't even say sexual immorality. Uh, immorality? Uh, what is immoral? I, I challenge you to go out in society among just general public and ask them, what is immoral? Do you know what the definition of morality or immoral is? Well, it comes from the root of the word, the mores, or the cultural understanding of a society. Uh, what are the things that are immoral? What are the things that are against the cultural mores of a society? Well, I think if you were to go out and just poll people at a local university today, uh, you might find that they would say global warming is immoral. Uh, you might find that they say, you know, polluting the planet, you know, that sort of thing is immoral. Uh, they might say that backing the nation of Israel is immoral. Uh, they might say that uh, if you take a stand against same-sex marriages, well, that's immoral. How dare you do such a thing? You see, immorality becomes very relative, doesn't it? But the King James Bible is very specific. It uses the word fornication. And it's clear. And when it does it, what it's referring to is any sexual intercourse that is outside the bonds of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it is. How do you know that's what it is? Well, it says so in Hebrews 13 in verse number 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. That's the only place that the bed is undefiled, within marriage. And the only marriage the Bible knows is between a man and a woman. It goes on and it says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So fornication is different from adultery. Adultery is when a married person steps out on their spouse to have a relation with somebody else. Fornication is a broader category. Anybody, married or not, crosses that line. By the way, whoremongers is the exact same word as fornication or fornicators. That's the exact same. Let's see the news media use that word once in a while. That's the, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The Greek word that is translated fornicators or fornication would be a form of the word porneia. You hear that, right? That's, that's where we will ultimately get the idea of just pornography. So it's not just the illicit act that we read about here. We'll get to that in just a second. And so there's parallels for sure that go forward into just the thought of the illicit sexual behavior in pornography. And although 1 Corinthians chapter 5 certainly is not talking about pornography, it's talking about the actual act, okay? Jesus Christ does talk about it. And Jesus Christ talks about it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 and 28 where he says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, referring to the law. But I say unto you, and he raises the bar, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so he goes on then in the next verse and he says, And if in the context of looking on a woman with lust in your heart. 
He goes on to the very next verse and he says, and if thy right eye offend thee, the offense comes from looking at something and thinking and dreaming about something you have no business doing. If your right eye offends you, it says pluck it out, remove it, and cast it from thee, for it's profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, as drastic as that seems, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Whatever it is that is the big temptation that's causing your eye to, okay, so remove it. He says, remove the eye. That's the way that Jesus puts it out there to get their attention. You know, for a lot of guys today, and it's a particular problem for men, but it applies to women certainly as well. This issue of pornography, and then we'll leave this and we'll get back to the text. Um, Jesus is basically saying, whatever it is that's causing you to think and to look and to lust, get rid of it. Do you realize that there was a day when we used to live without cell phones? Do you realize there was a day when we used to live without laptop computers? You know, some people who have this kind of a problem probably need to throw those things away because it's better for them to live without those things than to allow that pollution into their soul and the impurities that may end up sending them on a road that ends them up in hell. It's an addiction. It's a serious deal, and God takes it very, so much so that he says, if, if plucking your eye out helps, it's worth it. It's worth it. Well, it's interesting the way it's worded back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it says it's reported commonly that there's fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles. Notice that one, it's interesting, that one should have his father's wife. That one should have another man's wife. A woman that belongs to another man. There's just something about people who fantasize about having other people. That's just as evil. So whether it's fornication or, can I say, pornication, They're both examples of corrupted purity. And the first way we're going to look at that letter A in your notes is perversion. Perversion. And that's what we see in this verse. Uh, This is literally external perversion, externally impure. And it starts out by saying it is reported commonly. Everybody in the church knew about it. Everybody knew about it. And I want you just to bookmark that. I want you to just keep that in mind because we're going to get back to that in a little bit later. It's reported commonly, it said that one should have his father's wife, his stepmother. I'm sorry, y'all, that's just nasty. That's ridiculous. That's outrageous. But that's what happened. That's what happened. And he says that it's so outrageous. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says that such fornication is is not so much named among the Gentiles. And the Gentiles representing the pagan, godless, non-believing people of the world. Even they don't mess with this stuff. It's so bad. Now I find that challenging to believe that Paul said that. I don't fully understand what was in his mind as he was writing that because actually there's a lot of pagan, unsaved, filthy, unbelieving people that just, I mean, nothing's off the table. Anything goes. Listen, the sexual perversion that's rampant in the world today is beyond words. It's beyond description. In fact, It actually existed, and we know it existed, over 3,000 years ago. Moses wrote about it in Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18, we'll start in verse number 6. It says, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife, there it is, shalt thou not uncover. 
It's thy father's nakedness. So hey, porn addict, wherever they might be, that girl that you're uncovering, that girl that you're looking at, she belongs to another man. She belongs to another man. Until she's married, she belongs to her father. And when she's married, she belongs to her husband. And so, I mean, I don't know. God makes the association back. You uncover the nakedness of a woman, it's equivalent to uncovering the nakedness of the man that's responsible for her. What do you think that guy's, what do you think that guy's gonna do when he finds out? Well, maybe he never finds out. Well, what do you think God's gonna do? He'll find out. He knows about it. If we continue in Leviticus, beyond verse 8, what it gives for you, and you can read this on your own, it just goes on and on with a list of behaviors that were forbidden. And they're in detail. It goes into almost every scenario you could think of. And if you read it, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, why did the Lord have to list all the scenarios? Couldn't he just said, and such like? Well, he went and listed all the scenarios because they were actually, the, the pagan nations the, that the Jews were going to, about to go in and conquer and inhabit their lands, they were doing all of those things. Part of the reason why God in the Old Testament said, wipe them all out, kill them all, and you take their land. So you get in, and what were some of the things that were listed? Well, it refers to not uncovering the nakedness or not lying with, and this is the same thing, your sister, your granddaughter, your stepsister, your aunt, your daughter-in-law, your sister-in-law, Uh, Don't do a mother-daughter trio. Your neighbor's wife. It goes on and on. And before the list is over, it gets into homosexuality. Before it's over, it gets into, uh, uh, it's just unfathomable, bestiality. It just is this degradation of defilement. That's what it is. You could go a couple chapters down in Leviticus, chapter number 20 and verse 11. It says, the man that lieth with his father's wife, here's the parallel, hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. Death penalty. Death penalty. Go down to verse 23 of that chapter. And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things and therefore I abhorred them. So there was this activity going on. There was this perversion going on. And God says these are the abominations of the pagan nations. And because of that kind of behavior, God says, notice the words, I hated them. I hated them for it. Because they defiled the purity I mean, who would do such a thing? What kind of people would do such a thing besides these pagan, unsaved people? Well, you search the Bible for for an illustration of it, and you know who you're going to come up with? You remember David and Goliath, right? And Goliath was the giant of Gath. And in the Scriptures, if you compare Scripture with Scripture from, uh, I think it's 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, that Goliath had four brothers. And in another place, it refers to those four brothers as his four sons. How is it that your brothers are also your sons unless he had his father's wife? There's no other way. You say, that's ridiculous. How could that possibly be? Oh, well, wait a minute. Don't you remember where the giants come from in the Bible? The giants come from Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God, demonic angelic forces, come down and take daughters of men to be wives and bear children unto them who became giants in the land. And so these freak offspring of demonic interaction are the giants of which Goliath is one. And his very being is a result of this perverse 
sexual union. It's a filth and a stain on the purity of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. And don't kid yourself, it's demonic. And it's ever more rampant among us in these last days. So purity is corrupted for sure externally by perversion, but it's also corrupted internally by pride. So the church is involved in a sense when it says, and ye are puffed up. It's like Paul can't believe it. What exactly are they puffed up about? Well, they could be puffed up about a lot of things. For example, if you went back to chapter number one and verses four through seven, what you find is that they're puffed up or made proud because of their abundance of spiritual gifts. They had so much good available to them that they allowed it to make them proud. Uh, They were puffed up about their elevated amount of Bible knowledge uh, in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse number 1, that knowledge puffs up, and the Corinthians were puffed up. According to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18, the puffing up of pride comes as a result of your, this is the key, fleshly mind, your fleshly mind. So whatever was going on here in Corinth, somehow they were puffed up in the midst of this terrible, perverse act that they all knew about. So that vile dude, right, he corrupted purity with his perversion, but at some level the whole church did with their pride. You see, true biblical love is never puffed up. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the definition of what real true love is, right? Charity, right? It's not puffed up. And the question that we need to consider for our own lives and our individual application is, do do I love the Lord enough to keep myself pure? Do I love the Lord enough? Or do I love myself more to fulfill my fleshly lusts as they may enter into my mind? I mean, how does a spirit-filled believer respond or should respond to such a situation? Well, it tells you, of course, in verse number two. It says, rather, that you might mourn. That you might mourn. Because the stain has entered into your church body. So you grieve. Because it grieves the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In fact, he goes on in verse 8 and he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. James refers to it in chapter 4 and verse 6 going on. It says, But he, God, giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Don't be joyful. Don't be happy. There's terrible things going on. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So mourners are blessed because they're humble before God which then moves God to give you more grace and to give you help and offer comfort. True mourners are moved to make a change. And if the entire church mourns, well, then it'll take steps to fix it. And that's going to be our next point of study as we continue on in verse 3. Purity was corrupted, but purity has to be corrected. It has to be corrected. And what we see is, is that the purity of a church can be restored through judgment. Through judgment. Uh, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And God is a holy, righteous, just God as much as he is graceful and loving. He's just. And justice requires retribution. By the way, all of our sins, 
All of our sins require the justice and the judgment of Almighty God. All of them. But thank God for Jesus Christ who dies on the cross for our sins in our place. Takes God. Our sins do not go unpunished. We just don't get the punishment. Our sins are punished in the person of Jesus Christ when we humbly receive him as our Lord and our Savior. But rejecting his substitutionary payment means you've got to make your own payment. You've got to make your own payment. And so here Paul passes judgment. That's what we see in verse number three. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Paul says, I don't even need to be there. The fact that everybody knows about it, the fact that we have a multitude of testimony about it, and then in the mouth of two or three witnesses that are just witnesses, right? Every word shall be established. I've already judged the situation. What I want you to understand is that the same Jesus Christ who said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 1, judge not that ye be not judged. By the way, a very popular verse among, you know, carnal Christians. <laughs> judge not lest you be judged. Don't, hey, don't judge me. Hey, I won't judge you. Live and let live. You know, let bygones be by whatever. The same Jesus who said that, right, also said some other things. I mean, we got to have a balance, right? We got to understand the whole counsel. So in John chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Why, Jesus? Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So if we can determine the will of the Father, then we can judge according to the will of the Father, and that judgment is just. Well, you know what? The Father's will in this area is very clearly stated. In fact, it is so clearly stated. You couldn't miss it if you tried. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 3. Notice the words. For this is the will of God. See that? Even your sanctification, what does that exactly mean? That you should abstain from fornication. So it is clearly God's will. The Apostle Paul knew that it was God's will, and he says, look, I don't hear anymore. I'm judging right now. I'm judging it right now because it's according to the will of the Father, which means that the judgment is just. You go into 1 Thessalonians 4 and jump down to verse number 7 where it says, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. You know, good old-fashioned holiness is just not uh, all that popular anymore, is it? but God's still paying attention. Uh, that same Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So there is such a thing as a righteous judgment, and what it is is it's a biblical judgment. In this case, with the Apostle Paul and this situation in Corinth, man, it's a no-brainer, right? What was going on was clearly unrighteous, right? And what we need to do is we need to balance it because, well, Face it, everybody can run out of here and everybody can think that they're judging righteously. Everybody can grab a Bible verse and think they're doing okay, but what you gotta be careful of is you gotta make sure you get the balance right and Jesus knew it. And so he teaches us in John chapter eight and verse number 15 where he says that some people are gonna blow it. Ye judge after the flesh, he says. I judge no man. In other words, there's gonna be some people who are going to judge after the flesh. They're not going to call it fornication. They're going to call it immorality. They're just going to judge according to the mores of the current day in which we live. That's a fleshly judgment. That's a fleshly judgment. He goes on and he says, And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And in this case, he's talking about two men, the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ and God the Father. In other words, God alone sets the standard for what is true judgment. And for you and for me, it's all written down in a book. It's written down in the Word of God. That's righteous judgment. And you know what? This issue, purity is corrected through judgment, that, that is a problem today. 
Because nobody wants to take a stand. Nobody wants to judge. Because, well, I don't want to say everyone, but far too many people, well, they're dirty. They're dirty, and they want to lean on Matthew 7.1. Well, you know, I won't judge you, you don't judge me. How about that? We'll just leave it there. I mean, look, I, I would expect nobody within the sound of my voice is worried about having done the thing that we just read about in verse number one. Okay, great. But how about people within the sound of my voice that fantasize about the images of uncovering the nakedness of somebody? I mean, it's everywhere, right? And like I said, this is man's biggest problem. This secretly looking and lusting after images of women. It's dirty. Yet, there's no shortage of hypocrisy these days. A lot of people are just as dirty, taking the word of God inappropriately, misapplying it. Oh, by the way, did I begin by saying the most pure being we can find on the planet is a little child? And the only thing more pure than that would be the word of God. And people want to take the pure word of God. Every word of God is pure, the, the Proverbs say. And they want to make it impure at some level by twisting it and contorting it and using it for their own benefit. And so what they do is they want to judge, but they don't judge righteously. They judge to appease their own filthy consciences. In this particular case, the correction that's going to come for the purity, this judgment is going to come from the entire local congregation. We call that church discipline. Church discipline. Here's a question for you. In the issue of church discipline, publicly revealing a sin in order to expel it from the community so as to preserve the benefits of community, how do you know when to correct someone publicly and when to do it privately? This is the $40,000 question. This is the real issue. Because let me tell you something. If we were to be in the business of parading every sinner and every sin up on stage, um, we wouldn't be paying the light bills very long. There wouldn't be anybody showing up because we're all guilty, right? This is not about just exposing every little nuance of every person who does anything. This is very specific. By the way, if a church ever did that, who would want to go there? I mean, really, right? And it's not just about pragmatism. It's not the right thing to do. Listen, as we will see, church discipline is a very serious deal. We'll see that when we get to verse 5. And you better be sure if you're doing it that you are doing it strictly by the book. You better be sure. So how do we know when to correct somebody publicly and when to correct them privately? Well, it's really not that hard. Sin that is committed publicly, sin that is committed openly, with the goal of the threatening to do damage to the entire body, must be corrected publicly to preserve the purity of the entire body. But rest assured, friends, brothers and sisters, sins that are committed privately should be corrected privately. If they're not threatening the entire church body, it's a personal issue. They should have somebody love them enough to care, to them, care for them enough to go to them and to help encourage them to repent of their sin and get right. But in verse number one, it's reported commonly. It was committed openly and somehow they were proud of it. So it needed to be corrected publicly. How do you know that? Well, at the end of verse number two, it says that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the, the violator has to be taken away from the group, you, you all. It's plural. 
And you go down in verse number four and it says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together. That's the gathering. That's the assembly of the local congregation. And when you do that, by the way, it carries a particular power. It's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ because the congregation is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. It carries such strength. So why is it exactly that we would have to exercise such a thing? I mean, it is very difficult. Well, let's look at this point, sub-point A, the purpose. Let's look at the purpose of church discipline. And what we'll see is that there is a twofold purpose to church discipline. The first one is this. Discipline serves the church to promote health, right? Think about it. Jesus' body, the church, has been corrupted by what we'll call rogue cells. They're multiplying far too quickly. The medical world, we call those cancers. They're cancers. And they must be removed. By the way, if you yourself or you have known others who have gone through cancer treatments and maybe they're survivors, it's hard, right? Because cancer is a disease that kills the body. It's so sad. But what you want to do, as soon as you find out you have cancer, if you hear that terrible C word from the doctor, oh my goodness, game on. What do we have to do to remove this from my body if we just say, ah, let's just agree to disagree. Let's just get along, you know, with one another. Can't we just let bygones be bygones? Um, you'll be dead soon. You'll be dead soon. And that's what's going on in the body of Christ. So when the head, Jesus Christ, his very mind written in the scripture, gives us the instruction on how to judge righteously, and he says, hey, y'all, it's time to do some surgery. Well, then the body has to do what the head says to do. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever been through it. I'm sure a lot of people have. Different kinds of surgery. That's not just a fun Saturday afternoon. That's just not a pleasant thing. That's not something you're just looking forward to. Now, you're looking forward to the health on the other end, right? But, I mean, cutting away, man, that, that's a bad day. And so it is whenever we have to do this in a church. So when it comes time to have to cut away, there's pain, there's scars, there's time for healing, Right? But then the body afterward, oh man, Whew, the cancer was removed. Wow, we feel so much better. I didn't even realize I could feel this good, right? Discipline serves the church to promote health. And the reason that's so critically important is because the church plays a critically important role, right, in all of our lives, in the entire community of believers. So the church provides protection from evil influences. You have got to get this. It is the church, the community, the body that provides the protection. So now we get to verse 5 where it says, to deliver such an one unto Satan. How exactly do we deliver such an one to Satan? We call him up and make a rendezvous up in Akron? I mean, we're, I mean how do we do this? We're going to deliver somebody? Unto, no, you remove the protection. You just remove the protection. God protects us. He hedges us about. Remember the book of Job? Chapter 1 and verse number 8, The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Notice, doth, God, doth Job fear God for naught? Hath not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and the substance, and his substance has increased in the land. In other words, Satan says to God, you've protected him so much that I can't even touch him. I can't even touch him. You know what our hedge of protection is today? It's the church. It's the church. You could think of an illustration this way as though the church is like a big umbrella. 
and, and we're all under the umbrella and the rain is falling and the rain is just the evil attacks of the devil all over. And as long as you're under the umbrella, you're safe from the attacks. To deliver such an one unto Satan is nothing more than removing them out from the protection of the umbrella. And what happens is, well, they get rained on. They get rained on. And so, keeping with the theme of this imagery of a rainstorm, you could liken the church unto Noah's Ark, right? And I've said this before, and I think it makes a lot of sense, that if you were in Noah's Ark, face it, it would probably be a little messy. It was probably a little stinky. But it's way better to be inside than outside. And that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul actually had to carry this out before. We read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning the faith, concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. He called them out by name. Whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it preserves the health integrity of the body of Christ, but it also does something else. And it, where it says that they may learn not to blaspheme, church discipline also has an element of teaching the offender a critically important lesson. And that's number two in the purposes. And so discipline serves the individual to promote restoration. And that is critically important. It says, for the destruction of the flesh. The destruction is tearing down. You know that. Edification is building up, right? So what we need to do, Christians, is we need to tear down the power and the influence of the flesh in our lives. And do you know how you can do that? You can do that very simply. Just obey the Scripture. If you will feed your spirit the food of the Word of God daily and you will obey it, well, that serves the purpose. But when people quit listening to the Word of God and they never obey the Word of God, well, then there has to be another method of trying to ramp up the punishment. You parents know this. You raise your children and your, parent and your children uh, do some foolish things like all kids do and you speak to them, you correct them, you say now, you know, Johnny, don't do that. And uh, you hope that they'll just listen to your words. If they listen to your words, all's good, right? It's when they quit listening time and time again that, well, if you're a good parent, you ramp up the pressure a little bit, if you know what I mean. And so with that being the case, God is a good parent, right? And this is an extreme measure for an extremely rebellious situation but it still serves the individual to promote restoration, right? Because it says, for the destruction of the flesh, right, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. By the way, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in your Bible is a reference to the rapture of the church. The day of the Lord is the, the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. You can run those references and see the consistency. So the question that comes up in this situation is, is that guy that we're talking about in this passage, is that guy really saved? Is he really saved? Well, by the way, that's a question that we ask about each other all the time. People do that from time to time, right? And you know what the real accurate answer is? Well, I mean, who can know for sure? I mean, he looks good for now. He didn't look too good yesterday. Whatever. You don't really know for sure, do you? I mean, what do we do in a church? The church is the body of Christ. The local church is the, the physical picture of what ultimately the church will be of nothing but purely born-again believers at the time of the rapture. But that day's not here yet. So a local church is a picture of what the ultimate universal church will be. They're both consistent in the scriptures, right? So the idea is, is that when a person says, I want to join your church, 
And we say, well, you have to be saved and biblically baptized. And we go through the requirements for membership into a local church. And they say, well, I've been born again. And they tell the story. What are we going to do? Say, well, I don't know if I believe you, pal. No, we take you at your word. I mean, I got no reason to think you're lying. So we take you at your word and we believe it. But when your life begins to repetitively demonstrate that maybe that's not the case, well, then maybe we need to reevaluate, right? And that's what's going on here, that the Spirit may be saved. Like, it's not a sure thing. It's not a sure thing. The idea is this. When the time comes that this extreme measure happens and you deliver someone unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the idea would be they're not listening to me anymore, the Lord says. They're not listening to my body. They're not listening to my word. They're not a part of, a, of the team. Well, let them go out in the world a little bit. Let Satan kick them around a little bit. And hopefully, they still have free will. They repent. Hopefully, they return to the Lord. Because church discipline serves both the church and the individual. The last thing I want to look at, we're not going to take a long time for this, it's the procedure. There is a procedure for church discipline that's found in Matthew chapter 18, from verses 15 to 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if you neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's a procedure. You go to him one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you bring some other people to try and convince him. If that doesn't work, ultimately you bring it for the church. When they refuse to respond, well, he's got to go. And verse 17 says, once you remove him, He's to be treated like a lost man because that's how he's behaving, because that's how he's acted. And then verse 18, man, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When in the official capacity the church makes this decision with righteous judgment, God defends it. He defends it. You bind it on earth, I'm binding it in heaven. You loose it on earth, I'm loosing it in heaven. So such people that go through this are bound to their sin until they get it right with God. Oh, and they get it right with the church. They're bound until they're, because the church bound them under the direction of the Lord and his word. The church looses them. You see how that works? There are other examples of church discipline. And I want you to notice the theme, the real general category is threats to the unity and continuity of the body. It's anything that openly causes division, a cancerous cell. So in Romans 16, 17 and 18, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions, and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And, and notice how they operate. By good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. They find kind, simple people who haven't done their homework. And they use fair words, kind words, and fair speeches, and they drive them right down the road of a lie. And they're causing division, and they're doing it openly, and they're not ashamed about it. And Paul says, knock it off. Mark them. Mark them in front of everybody. Let them know who they are. Don't have them with you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. That's a very general term. We don't have time to study it, but the, the reference is always to keeping order within the context of the assembly of the church. That's what it's always referred to. 
Walking disorderly is disorderly against the continuity of the body of the church. It's not just, hey, he blew it, he had a bad day. It's none of that. See? And so you only have a need to bring it to the church if the entire church needs to know, right? Because it's threatening the church. And almost nobody does it anymore because, well, everybody's a little dirty and nobody wants to say it. And I don't want to make people mad. And I don't. Oh, that's very practical, but it's not biblical. Verse 14 of that chapter says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. That's the natural reaction. They should be ashamed. Listen, I'm glad this message is over. Aren't you? I mean, really. We live in crazy, perverse times today, y'all. Fornication and pornography is so rampant in this world and sadly, more and more even in the church. Anything goes. No more control over the flesh. It's dangerous to the individual and it's dangerous to the entire church. Back in the days before the flood of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Jesus referred to that in Matthew 24, 37. It says, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Do y'all not think that we are near the end? You know what you need to know in these last days? Let me just tell you. If you're dabbling in your mind with crossing that line and jumping into some bad behavior you know you shouldn't be involved in, can I just give you some good brotherly advice? Man, just don't do it. I mean, hang on just a little bit more. It's not going to be that long and the Lord's going to come back. Think about that poor schmuck who makes the wrong decision and crosses the Lord and like the next day the Lord comes back. Oh, man, if I just waited one more day, you know. That's the days in which we live. You know what you need to know? This is in your notes. Very simple. Purity matters. It matters. You want to have fellowship with the Lord? 1 John 1, 5 and 6. God is light and Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God, but yet we continue to walk in darkness, we're just liars. We're just liars. You want to have fellowship with the Lord? You need to be pure. He is light. There's no darkness in Him. If you're going to walk with Him, you've got to be in light. That's what you've got to do. But let me finish with this because this is really awesome and then we're done. Not only do you need to know that purity matters, you need to know that church discipline works, man. Church discipline can actually work and provide what it's supposed to provide. Oh, the church immediately gets the relief from the cancerous cells, but if we took the time and you go into 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and you look through ver from verse 5 all the way to verse 10, you see Paul refer to the church in Corinth in a later letter telling them, hey, that guy back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that guy that had to be kicked out of your church, it's time to restore that guy. It's time to get it right with that guy. If any have caused grief, he's not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you, sufficient to such a man, such a man from 1 Corinthians 5, is this punishment that we kicked him out, which was inflicted of many, that's the whole church discipline, so that contrary-wise, you ought rather to forgive him Oh, by the way, you only do that once he repents. You don't just say, ah, that's enough, man, forget it. No, once he repents publicly, you ought to rather forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. And it actually can work. I've seen it work. You cast someone out. They realize how ridiculous and foolish their behavior was. They repent. They ask God and everybody associated for forgiveness. And they get right with the Lord and they get back in fellowship with his church and they can glorify him with the rest of their days. Man, this is a hard subject. The flesh is evil. It wants to control everything if you'll let it. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you've been convicted of your private sin. We don't need to hear about it. 
Just confess it to the Lord. Just get it right now and be done with it. He has some words of encouragement for us, and I just thought of this this morning, and so I added Psalm 18, 24, which says, Therefore hath the Lord recompensed to me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness or the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. And then he says this, With the merciful, thou, Lord, will show thyself merciful. With the upright, the Lord shows himself upright. With the pure, the Lord shows himself pure. But with the froward, the Lord shows himself froward. And John said in 1 John that every man that has this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. Now thank God for the cleansing on Calvary, but there's something about walking this thing out day to day that we've got a role in making sure that each and every one of us are pure. I can only take care of me, you can only take care of you. But when something threatens the unity and the purity of this body, well, then it has to go to that level. This is a tough subject today, but God put it in there for a reason. I think there's something that we need to learn from it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Amen.